two weeks in a row. It's good to see you guys. If we haven't met or if you're visiting today, my name is Art Pereira. I'm our Director of Student Ministry, and as usual, I'm really thankful to be opening up God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Acts 6. This morning, we'll be picking back up in our studies of Acts. It's been quite a few weeks, so uh, we're going to do a quick recap. We're finding ourselves in the early days of the church, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The church has been expanding greatly. There were the apostles who received the Holy Spirit, and then they began to minister powerfully. They're in leadership of a church that grows from a handful to hundreds to thousands. And signs and wonders are being done. Uh, You know, we've got the Holy Spirit making himself visible in really tangible ways. We've seen people healed. We've seen people speak languages that they didn't learn. Uh, And we've seen unity and giving to the needy. And the church was unified in its mission at this time. And so even as they grow, they have one heart. And they're caring for one another. But as their numbers grew, there was a greater need for administrative help. And uh, their needs grew. So in the beginning of Acts 6, which we read a few weeks ago before Advent, the church appointed seven men to join them in the ministry. And scripture says that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied daily. One of those men was named Stephen. Uh, We're going to read about him today. But the best way that I could describe Stephen is something that I said to Jeff earlier this week. If If you read this passage, we get the idea that Stephen is like an overflowing cup. And after we read the passage, I'll explain a little bit about what I mean by that. So we're in Acts 6, verses 8 through 15. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we recognize that we need you and your spirit to teach us, to guide us, to mold us in your likeness. As we just sang, we do ask that the Holy Spirit would teach us and grow us and be evident here. Father, where we are hard-hearted, would you soften our hearts? If we are weary, would you strengthen and encourage us? In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you noticed, but this is kind of a rough way to start Stephen's ministry career. He's just been picked to move up. He's kind of moving on to the big leagues. And like any new job, and I'm sure a lot of us have experiences starting a new job, I can't imagine any of us would love to start with complaints and accusations. You know, your first day, you're kind of like trying to get things figured out. Imagine someone comes up to you like, hey, we got this for you. And you think it's like a, you know, welcome to the new office gift. It's a stack of complaints. You know, that sounds terrifying. In a lot of ways, Stephen's the new guy, the rookie. He's new to the team. And if I were him, I'd be, I'd be pretty nervous. 
I'm a huge nerd, and ever since Disney Plus came out, I've been re-watching all the Marvel movies. I decided that that would be like my thing, that when, I, when I'm resting, I'm just going to start watching from the first release all the way through. Um, I'm seeing a lot of things I didn't see the first time, as tends to happen when you repeat things. And in Captain America Civil War, this is an incredible fight scene. If you hate superheroes, which I'm sure some of you are so superheroed out, just bear with me. Uh, but there's all these heroes in this fight. You've got Iron Man going up against Captain America, and you've got Black Widow versus Hawkeye, and both sides are just, like, tense and ready to fight. But before this fight, they go out and they get some fresh blood. They get these two, like, total not-ready, not-real heroes, uh, Ant-Man and Spider-Man, and the whole fight scene is hilarious because they're just geeking out the whole time. Look what's happening, you know? They're in the middle of the fight, and they keep getting distracted. They are totally mesmerized. They're punching guys and then apologizing. Oh, I'm so, so sorry, you know? Uh, I'm a big fan, uh, that kind of thing. And, and Spider-Man especially keeps trying to show off for his own team and for the guys he's fighting against. You know, it's this whole weird dynamic, and he's got something to prove. He says at one point in the middle of the fight, like, I've got to make this look good, you know? It's tough being the new guy. <laughs> But Stephen doesn't really seem too phased by it. You'd, you'd almost expect him to start ministry, and he's, he's with the apostles, you know, these guys who are mighty. But in fact, the first thing we read about Stephen is that he's full of faith and the Holy Spirit. It says that earlier in the book of Acts, uh, in Acts 6, as they, as they select the guys who are going to serve, say, Stephen, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then we go on to read about his ministry later, which is what we just read. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This guy was mighty. He was making moves. He was not this scared, shy, new guy. Not there trying to impress everyone else. He wasn't starstruck by his famous teammates. He was there to do work and to join the Holy Spirit in the work of the kingdom. I told you earlier that I think of Stephen like an overflowing cup. And the first thing we see is that he's overflowing with power, by the Spirit. Honestly, I'm tempted to be impressed by him. He gets on the scene, and already the descriptions we've had of him is that he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit and then full of grace and power. And he's out there doing signs and wonders, great wonders and signs among the people. But if we were to be impressed by Stephen in this case, I think we would kind of miss the point. It's really important that we understand really quickly that Stephen's just filled with something really good. He's got nothing. He's just a cup. But what he's got is an abundance of the Holy Spirit who is powering him to do God's work. He's not the star of the show at all. If you were to read this and go, man, it's Stephen. Stephen goes off and does incredible things. We would really miss the heart of what's happening in this passage. Because what's really happening in this passage is that God fills Stephen with grace and power to do his great work. That's an important distinction because one of those beliefs and one of those views is really freeing. Another one of those beliefs is actually a cage that we would invite ourselves into. Because if we could read this and think, wow, Stephen was incredible. I will never be that incredible. He did all this crazy stuff. I can't do any of that. We really quickly fall into the comparison game. The other way we could view this is the truth of the matter, that Stephen was willing to be used in a moment by a God that filled him, by a God that would equip him and give him the grace and power to do what was needed. 
And when I see that, I'm invited to go, well, God could fill me and use me. I might just be an empty cup, but I've got room for what God can do. I went to see the Mr. Rogers movie recently. Did anyone see that? It was, it was really good. It was kind of like a, like very few people saw it. It kind of slipped into theaters. It was really good. Tom Hanks did a great job. It gets a little weird at points. But uh, there's this one moment where this reporter, he's trying to instigate Fred Rogers' family, and he's, he's talking to the wife, and he says to the wife, it must be really hard to be married to a saint like that, which a lot of you are going, people say that to my wife all the time, right? Like, <laughs> but she says to the reporter, he would hate that you said that. He hates when people call him a saint. Because you say that so that you don't have to do anything he does. This idea that we start to compare and we put people on these pedestals so that what they do becomes unreachable for us. And so we could put Stephen on this pedestal and go, man, this guy's incredible. I could never be a saint like him. But when you get the perspective that Stephen was just an empty cup filled with the Spirit, I can be an empty cup. That word grace that we see there, it says that Stephen was full of grace and power. That word grace that we see there, it's used in Acts 43, a little earlier, to describe the apostles. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And upon first reading, you're like, well, what does this mean? Were they just really kind? Were they really gracious? Did they move with grace like a ballerina? (laughs) But that word grace, as we see it being used in Acts, it actually means a generous gift from God. They were filled with a generous gift from God. God's favor, God's love for them expressed in something he gave. So Stephen was full of something that God had generously gifted him. He was filled with power by the Spirit. So filled with the presence and Spirit of God that the people around him encountered the power of the Holy Spirit. It spilled out to them. As he walked the streets, it showed up in how he interacted with them. It says that he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. I'm often found with a hot mug of tea, and has been happened has happened once or twice. If you surprise me, guess what happens? I burn my hand. It spills right over. Stephen's walking around. What he's got, what he's full of, is just spilling over into the lives of the people around him. He was living out the gospel truth that Jesus had come to set him free, to give him life, and to give him the Holy Spirit, who would enable him not only to live well, but to show this power to others. So not only was Stephen given power by the Spirit, he was given wisdom by the Spirit. In Acts 6 and 9 it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. There's a group of people that as Stephen's out there doing God's work, they feel pretty disturbed by it. They don't like it. They just had a plot against this guy. I like, I like any time the Bible's got some schemes and plots, I really like it. It gets into a conspiracy theory, and that's my jam, right? And so these guys start creating this conspiracy theory, and they're out to get Stephen. And they start to speak out against him. Right? It would be not unlike if all of you just started to argue with me in the middle of the sermon. What would happen is I would curl up in a ball, okay? That's my worst nightmare. But Stephen was given wisdom by the Spirit, and it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking, I've heard from some of you before that you actually don't understand me when I talk. And that's not because I'm wise, it's because I talk too fast, right? That is not what's happening with Stephen. It's not that he's mumbling and kind of, you know, what's happening here is that he is so filled with wisdom that he can't be outwitted. 
They argue him, and he knows what to say. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And once again, all the married folks are going, that's what I tell my spouse every day, right? I'm so filled with wisdom, they can't argue. And that's going to get you in a fight when you get home, so don't do that. But this actually reminds me of one of my favorite things about Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, you see all these moments where Jesus is teaching, and he's ministering, and he's performing signs and wonders, and he's saying things to people in public spaces. And the Pharisees and other religious leaders, they start trying to trap him. So they have these meetings to come up with the exact question they're going to ask him in public to embarrass him. If we ask him this, he won't know what to say. We're going to stump him. We're going to really make this guy look bad, right? They're out to get him. And often, it's my favorite part, he wouldn't even answer their question. He would ask them one question back, and they would start going, oh man, we didn't think of that. <laughs> They'd be totally stumped. They would be outwitted by this guy, full of wisdom. We see this happening here with Stephen. They couldn't withstand Stephen. He's got leaders rising up left and right, and they can't withstand him. Because they weren't arguing against his wisdom. Jesus actually saw this coming. He knew that his followers would be arrested and persecuted and questioned. In Luke 21, when Jesus is ministering, he says to his followers that they're going to be arrested, they're going to be questioned, they're going to be publicly shamed, and he says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. I wouldn't consider any moment of public shame to be my opportunity to bear witness. You know, but Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is what Jesus said to his followers, that people would accuse them, they would shame them, they would question them in public. And he said, don't try to come up with what to say, which for those of us who don't like to think before we talk, this is awesome. But he said, don't worry about it. None of your adversaries are going to be able to withstand and contradict you. I'm going to give you a mouth and wisdom. We stop so much because of what's going to happen down the road, don't we? There's so many moments where we're trying to make a decision, uh, and there's, this, there's a saying called analysis paralysis. We, we, we take a, a moment, we're going to come up with the best move, and that moment goes on and on and on because the best move seems so impossible. Well, if I make this move, there's these five things that are going to happen. And then these other five things, and we sit there and we freeze, and it's the person you don't want to play a board game with because their turn takes 30 minutes, right? They have to make the absolute best move or they will do nothing. It drives me crazy. But we do it in our own lives. We get analysis paralysis. And I, I know that there's opportunities to minister in my workplace. I know there's opportunities to pray for people or to speak to people in my school. I know that situations are going to come up where I can do the right thing, but when I do that one right thing, these three things will happen. What do I do then? Jesus said, don't worry about that. I'm going to give you wisdom when the next thing happens. He's saying to his disciples, as you go, you're going to do great things for me. I'm going to give you power to do those great things, and then people are going to question you. And honestly, if it's us, we stop there. We go, well, if I'm going to be questioned, I can't do that. We're too concerned about that. But Jesus is saying, don't worry about the questions. I'm going to give you the wisdom. I'll tell you what to say. We'll have wisdom by the Spirit. So for those of us who are looking for the right thing to say and do, that's the Spirit's job. 
It was was his job to empower us in the first place. And then when we're questioned for the things we do, it's his job to give us the wisdom. Our job is to be obedient. Our job is to be faithful. And even that, just because he gives us the strength to. And finally, we see Stephen's defense by the Spirit. In Acts 6, 11 through 15, it says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. The questioning hadn't worked. The accusations hadn't worked. So now they're, they're planting seeds. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So we've seen Stephen in public doing ministry work powered by the Spirit. We've seen him answer to accusation and to questioning and given wisdom by the Spirit. And now we see him starting to be on trial. Next week we're going to open up with a speech, our passage is going to be a speech that Stephen actually gives. It's pretty lengthy, so, you know, good luck, Jeff. But we're setting the stage for Stephen being on trial. And it says that as he gets on trial, now they're accusing him. They've planted people. They couldn't argue him, so now they're like, all right, that's it. We'll pay some people to say we've got false witnesses. Again, I'm loving the conspiracy theory going on here, right? The Bible's full of all this intrigue. And then gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The best part of this whole thing is that they had to secretly instigate people because they could not catch Stephen in the wrong. They had nothing real to accuse him with. Living a life powered by the Spirit and given the Spirit's wisdom, they couldn't catch him in a lie. They couldn't catch him in dishonesty. They had no other disintegrity in his life to point to. They had to come up with stuff. I'm not sure what Stephen was saying as he ministered, but clearly the Holy Spirit's been using them to shake things up. And they felt so threatened that they planted people in the audience to start accusing him of all sorts of blasphemy. Now, if you think that being questioned publicly is rough, this is next level. This is terrifying. This is when you start to go, okay, my life is on the line now. My reputation, my relationships. What are people going to think of me? But what what am I going to do about this? They find false witnesses. And part of these accusations is that he's changing the customs of Moses. That he's speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And we see this weird thing happen. It ends by saying, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? I think we could be tempted to go, well, he's having a really great hair day and he's got an awesome skincare regimen and he's just glowing, right? But there's something way greater going on here. If you read from different theologians and different views of this, what we're seeing is actually a, a tends to be seen as a, a miraculous glowing of his face. In other scriptures, we see angels described as having glowing faces to the point that people are scared. Think back to the Christmas story. Every time an angel shows up, what are they saying? Don't be afraid. Because if you're just walking at night and some dude shows up glowing real bright, you're not thinking this is totally normal. You're thinking there's some radioactive nonsense going on. You've got to get out of there. Right? But we see him glowing. It would explain everyone's attention, right? Everyone's taking note of his face glowing like the face of an angel. He's on trial. They're accusing him of blasphemy. 
and all of a sudden he's got this divine radiance that they would only associate with angels. He's been ministering with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's answered with wisdom by the Spirit. And now his very defense is by the Spirit. God is showing up for him in a way that only God could. There's a special significance here because where else in Scripture we see someone's face glowing is when Moses goes up the mountain to receive the very commandments that they're accusing Stephen of speaking against. So Moses goes up the mountain, comes down, and people are terrified of him because his face was glowing because he'd been in the presence of God. And all of a sudden, they're accusing Stephen in public of speaking against God and against Moses, and his face is like the face of an angel. God is defending him in a way only God could. Stephen, empowered by the Holy Spirit, had lived such a good life that his enemies had to make up lies to accuse him of. And so as he's going in, he knows his defender is going to defend him. I mentioned that my worst nightmare would be to be questioned like this in public, and then to, to be accused would be even worse. But I'm also the kid who, when I would break a vase, as I, I'm, I'm klutzy, I have ADHD, there's a lot of breaking going on in my household. I'm also an only child. There's no one to blame this stuff on. I tried it on my dad once. Did not work. I would hide things, and you know what happened? For three days, I'm sitting in my room like, oh man, my mom is going to lift up the couch with Herculean strength and see the little chips of the vase under there. Right? And, which, of course, never works. My mom, you know, my mom, she walks in, she's like, where did my face go? She'll never notice it's gone, right? And I sit in shame and guilt and fear. I'm so scared of an accusation. And that's when it's real, and honestly, that's when it's tiny. In our day-to-day lives, we, we have this fear. Oh, man, someone's going to think I'm not doing good enough at my job. Oh, man, I was really rude the other day. That person's going to remember that. We even have these moments where we're just walking, living our lives, and we'll remember something like that. We're like, oh, man. I really screwed that up. Stephen has been living so faithfully. Part of this is trusting that the Spirit's going to defend him. He's doing things that have real consequences. This is not some broken vase. This is not something inconsequential. He's been threatened for what he's doing for the kingdom. But he's not worried about that because he knows the Spirit's going to defend him. He's there answering boldly. We're going to see his answer next week. It doesn't read like someone who's scared and hiding. It reads like someone who knows who's going to defend him. You know, like many of us, I struggle with how others see me, and I can be a bit of a people pleaser. And one of my friends constantly reminds me, your job is to be faithful. Let God do the work in your life. He'll defend you to anyone else. He'll work in anyone else's heart. The second I start managing how people see me and how they respond to me and having to defend myself, I lose sight of doing what God wants me to do. Paul says in Galatians, am I trying to please man or please God? If I was trying to please man, I would not be living to please God. When I was applying to college, things weren't looking really well. We had gone to visit this college that I really wanted to go to. I wanted to go to a a private Christian college, and it was expensive. I loved the school. I went for a visit, and I, like, fell in love. And my dad was, like, all excited about it. But on the drive back, I remember him looking kind of nervous, and he looked at me and goes, I don't know how we're going to do this, kid. It was expensive. It was rough. The, the scholarship caps were pretty low, and I didn't have that great of grades in high school, so that was not looking great. But I had an older friend, I had a mentor at the time, who worked for the same denomination as the college I went to, the CMA. 
No, I grew up in a PCA church. I have no relationship with the CMA besides knowing this one guy who's in the CMA. He called a few friends. And one day I get a phone, from the, uh, phone call from the school I was applying to, and they said, congratulations, we got your uh, scholarship package figured out. And I'm like, I know what the cap is, and I know I don't even meet the standards for the cap, so it's going to be pretty low. And they told me the amount, and I go, sorry, could you repeat that? And they go, yeah, you, you qualify for the CMA scholarship because you've been attending a CMA school, uh, church for more than six years, so we're able to max out your caps and raise them. And I was like, I don't go to a CMA school. And they go, no, it's in our system that you do. Sorry, it's CMA church. No, it's in your system. No, no, no. I, I go to a Presbyterian church. I do, I have, I've never stepped foot in a CMA church. And I go, that's really weird because our computer says otherwise. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Works for me. So I ended up going to school all four years with a scholarship that I did not qualify. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be honest. I'm telling them, like, this, this doesn't work. Like, I, I, I think I visited a CMA church the next Sunday just to, like, kind of feel a little bit better about it. But I got through on someone else's credit, on someone else's experience, on someone else's labor on my behalf. I later found out my mentor had gone to bat for me. And he'd been really honest with them. Hey, the kids never set foot in my church, but, you know, I think he'd be a great candidate. And, but I'm getting through on someone else's work, on someone else's experience, on someone else's credit. And Stephen's sitting there just, just being honest about what he's seen and what he's experienced in the goodness of Jesus. And he's got the face of an angel because someone else is defending him. Someone else is doing the work of being his defense. There's so much more freedom when I don't have to defend myself. And there's so much freedom in knowing that just as the Spirit will empower me to live a godly life, the Spirit will defend me. I don't have to worry all the time about how I am seen or my reputation. The Spirit will take care of that. And most of all, to rest that as we screw it up, because we're going to screw it up, that in heaven I have an advocate that defends me. I have an advocate in Jesus who goes to trial for me and pleads my case for me and gives me his credit, his experiences as my defense. I'm getting in on someone else's light. I'm getting in on someone else's credit. And we don't have to live our lives in the fear of defending ourselves, of proving anything. But we can rest in the grace of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit to empower us to live full lives for him. To empower us when we don't have the strength to obey. We sing a song here that says, He will hold me fast. Jesus, when I do not have the strength to hold myself, you're going to have to hold me fast to empower us to have the strength to obey, to give us wisdom as we're questioned, as people ask us about our faith, as we have to make decisions, to give us wisdom, and to defend us, to defend us when we mess up, to defend us when others are looking at us with questioning. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, the best thing I can ask of you is that you would help us to rest in your gospel, to rest in your spirit's power, your spirit's wisdom, your spirit's defense. The best thing I can ask is that I would stop comparing myself for one second, stop defending myself for one second, and let you be enough. So I ask this week that we would live in light of that, that you would work in our hearts to surrender to what you do, that you would give us strength, wisdom, and defense and grace to live fully for you. In Jesus' name, amen.